Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Last month, I reached out to a publicist at William Morrow to request an advanced copy of a forthcoming memoir by the filmmaker Charles Band, who I think is most famous for the Puppet Master movies, which even if nothing is coming to mind when you hear that name, I have a feeling that if you saw the poster art or one of the covers at a DVD store, you would you, you would recognize it. But he's also famous for the Evil Bong franchise and the Ginger Dead Man franchise, and also the climactic Evil Bong versus Ginger Dead Man. And as things currently stand, it does seem like he will be on the show in November. And the publicist I was speaking to about that book, she was super friendly. I reached out, asked for the book. She got back to me right away. She said, sure, I'll put it in the mail for you right now. You'll have it by the weekend. And that was that. But then, like a few minutes later, she sent a follow-up email. And she was like, hey, I looked at your blog, and I'm slipping another book into the envelope that I think is up your alley. Which at first was a little disconcerting, because I was like, okay, she looked at the blog, now I'm going to open the envelope, and there's going to be a, like a little paperback called like, how to, how to stop being a little fuck, or so, I don't know, like, she probably to do something horrible about my character. But so a few days go by, it's Saturday night, I come home after a 13-hour shift at the bar, I'm totally burned out, and there's an envelope on my doorstep, and it's kind of chunky. So I grab the envelope, I go inside, it's nearly midnight at this point, and as I'm taking off my shoes, I open the envelope, and I see that, yeah, just a couple days later, here it is, the memoir by Charles Band, the one that I requested, so I, I moon over it for a little while, I read the jacket copy, I, you know, fan through it for pictures, and then I see the other book that she slipped into the envelope. It's a recent release, it's called Anatomy of Desire by L.R. Dorn, and it had an interesting cover, an interesting summary, and when I flipped through it right there, having just gotten back from work, I noticed that it has an interesting design, too, and ended up reading, I think, 20 or 25 pages while standing in front of the refrigerator. The novel is a thriller, it's a courtroom drama, it's a murder mystery, it's an epistolary novel, and it's told in the format of a true crime podcast. The show's host is named Duncan, and he sets the stage at the outset for a story of true crime. An alleged murder that took place on a lake, where a woman and her girlfriend were celebrating something, they had champagne with them, and then one of them drowns and the other runs away. I liked it a lot. Uh, it's, the novel's only like 300 pages, and it's super propulsive, so you can read it in a couple sittings, as I did. It's got a bunch of different voices, a little bit of humor, a little bit of sex, a little bit of violence. It's what we in Miami would call a real Friday night. And it resonated with me. It resonated as I was reading it. It resonated with some other stuff that I've been thinking about and working on. Mo and I think mostly it, it had to do with, like, anxieties about how I present myself, which is a super navel-gazy thing to be concerned about, I know, but it's also an element of Dorn's novel, because the main characters uh, surrounding the, the murder mystery at the heart of it, they're all social media influencers, and the novel explores how these, how these people are not really what they sell themselves to be on social media, that the person they create on social media is, is an airbrushed version of themselves, and this, by the way, is just, like, my personal interpretation of the book. Like, it is, it is a thriller, and there are, like, there are themes in it to be explored, but, like, it made for kind of an awkward, 
obviously they sent me the book because like the authors were going to be down to do an interview if I wanted to. And, but it made for an awkward encounter with the, the authors. Um, cause initially when I reached out, I wanted to say something that would like prove that I had actually read the book. Cause you hear all these flustered stories from authors who go on shows and to talk about a book and they can tell that the host didn't even like open the cover. So when I initially reached out, I was like, Hey, I thought your book was a fascinating like meditation on people having dual selves and shit like that. And when I sent the email, I was like, they're gonna fuck, they're gonna see that I read this shit closely and it's gonna incline them even more to join me on the show. Then that, and that is not what happened. They were very curious, like, well, we would love to come to the show and talk to you about the book, but we don't really have that much to say on your interpretation of, namely, like, I was dwelling on the social media component of the, of the novel, which really is kind of on the periphery. But it also, like, that dude, that thing of, like, people not being who they present themselves to be was hitting me really hard. I think because I was also reading all those presidential biographies. Where, where, that's where, when you get, like, the sort of warts and all portrait of the person who sold themselves to an entire nation, sold themselves so effectively that they were that they were elected into office. And, of course, they never turn out to be the person that they were at the podium. But, but anyways, a long time ago, I think around the time that Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov first came out, some critic wrote like a very incisive analysis of the book and plucked out all these symbols and metaphors. And it the, the, the critique was read by a huge audience. And then Nabokov read this critic's analysis and said something like, she has picked beautiful fruit from my garden. I only regret that I didn't plant any of it myself. Or he said something like that. I'm either paraphrasing or making this up entirely. But that's essentially what happened when I first reached out to L.R. Dorn, a writer duo. I don't think I've mentioned that. The duo is made up of Matt Dorff and Suzanne Dunn. And I asked them if they would like to be on the show to talk about the whole dual self thing. And they were, and they pointed out diplomatically that this, that the dual self thing, it's there, but it's not really the main thing they wanted to explore. Yes, we started with wanting to play with the traditional book format. We had this idea of adapting a docu-series transcript as the format of the book, that different kind of form where you let the character speak and you don't judge. And there is uh, no real authorial voice that's guiding you through. It's up to the reader and the listener to decide who's telling the truth or, or, or who they want to believe. And that kind of a, a 360 degree perspective where you have different voices, as Suzanne has said, a panorama of voices, all with different agendas, you know, from different uh, economic classes, different religious perspectives, legal perspectives, that that would be really an interesting way of presenting a story like this. The Anatomy of Desire is also a reimagining of a Theodore Dreiser true crime novel that was later adapted into a 1951 movie called A Place in the Sun starring a very young Montgomery Clift and a way younger Elizabeth Taylor, which is a movie that I watched a couple years ago for the for the project. I probably shouldn't be going on this digression, by the way, about Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift, but at the same time, and, and this is part of the problem that so compelled me toward the novel in the first place and its depiction of content creators with dual selves. The fact that I shouldn't be going on this digression is also part of the point of the digression. 
The film historian Karina Longworth has an incredible podcast called You Must Remember This, with lots of corrective histories about old Hollywood. And there's one episode in particular where she talks about the romance-slash-friendship between Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, a romance that apparently started on the set of A Place in the Sun. Taylor was 17 years old, and Clift was, I think, 10 years older. And there's an anecdote in that episode about the car accident that seems to divide Montgomery Clift's very short career into a before and after. One night, Elizabeth Taylor is throwing a party at her house, and I think she lived on high ground with, like, a squigglesome road leading up to her house. And late at night, as Montgomery Clift was driving home from the party, he fell asleep at the wheel and crashed into a telephone pole not very far down the road. And the crash was severe, and he fucked up his face in the process. And in Longworth's retelling, she mentions that Elizabeth Taylor ran down that road with a few other guests from the party. They pulled Montgomery Clift out of the wreck, and Elizabeth Taylor sat on the ground with Clift's head in her lap as they called for an ambulance. Clift's face was split up, he was bleeding all over her, and, and he's, he's, he's muttering something, and she can tell that, like, he's, by the sound of it, that he's kind of choking on something. And so, at that moment, Elizabeth Taylor, in what seems to me like a horribly dark, but almost New Testament-level gesture of tenderness, she pries open Montgomery Cliff's mouth, sticks her fingers into it, and pulls two shattered teeth out from the back of his throat. We went back to the, a, a common film that we had, had seen and both really enjoyed, A Place in the Sun. And A Place in the Sun was based on a novel that was written in 1925 as we started doing our, our research um, by Theodore Dreiser. And then that in, it, in itself had been based on a true crime that happened around the turn of the century. We realized it had this really deep, long lineage um, of narrative and that fascinated us, particularly because of the current, you know, craze with true, true crime. And, you know, we go back and start thinking, well, and start realizing through our research how much Theodore Dreiser based his characters and his story on the real people and the true crime, almost to the extent that it was like a nonfiction novel. It almost feels perverse to mention that episode of the Montgomery Clift Elizabeth Taylor story, especially because the only reason I'm mentioning it is because it happened to come to mind. When Martin Scorsese's movie Shutter Island came out, uh, I think like 15 years ago, it's, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and part of he plays like a, a kind of gumshoe detective, but he also his character is also a World War II veteran. And there was a review of the movie where the, the critic bristled at the fact that, like, in, in order to flesh out DiCaprio's character and to show his his trauma from the war, Scorsese shoots these flashbacks showing how DiCaprio's character was one of the troops who liberated a concentration camp. And of course, in the flashback, we get some pretty striking imagery from inside the camps, and we see like the emaciated survivors, the the squalid conditions of their of their quarters. And what the critic was saying is that it's kind of offensive to the victims of the Holocaust that their suffering should be used as just a plot point in a movie about something completely different, just something that shades in a character's background. Which does kind of make sense. I get it. Like that's a solid point. But the same 
might be said of anyone's trauma or suffering, that you should just, you should never discuss it casually or flippantly, just conjuring it back into the moment simply because it happened to cross your mind and you're curious. But I, but I feel like the, the explosion of true crime podcasts, such as the one being presented here in Anatomy of Desire, things like Dr. Death or My Favorite Murder, their popularity suggests that we do want to hear these stories, or at least a good many millions of people in the country do. It shows that while we aren't necessarily rejoicing in the misfortune of others, we do want to turn like a kind of cold, clinical and gossipy eye to that misfortune and to use it as some means for like understanding our own lives or making peace with the reality that like, oh, this person was murdered and they were kidnapped, tortured, murdered, and that could happen to me. There was no reason it happened to them. In fact, at the moment, I'm reading this history of war. It's called On Killing, and it, it aspires to be one of the few books that takes a very serious, sort of cold look at the act of killing and how it changes soldiers' lives, how they are prepared for the act. And the historian points out that, like, it was in the Victorian era that the world kind of cracked down on, you know, the Western world kind of cracked down on lewd content, anything remotely sexual, like even putting skirts over the legs of furniture because everyone's sensibility was too delicate and they would have been offended by it. And what he points out is like, is how that societal sort of closeting of everyone's sexuality, that's what gave birth to pornography, to like the explosive market of pornography. And similarly, he says, the way, the way that we tend to repress our morbid curiosity about death and, you know, we're, we're being ashamed at the fact that we try to rubberneck when we're passing a really calamitous traffic accident. He points out, like, that's what gives birth to, you know, extremely violent horror movies, extremely violent video games. And those are the kinds of things that create killers, is his, is his point. Is that if we were all just a little bit more open with respect to our interest in these morbid things, if we, if we felt more comfortable just discussing them as they came to mind, rather than repressing them, we'd be able to exercise those violent impulses and fascinations in a far healthier way. You do podcasts. We love yes. podcasts. Podcasts, as Matt said, have true crime um, consistently at the, you know, at the top of top tens. And one of the things that, you know, that I'm aware of is that some of the early podcast um, coverage of true crimes was done from the perspective of, let's say, two women who both of them with a glass of wine, who wanted right. to armchair travel through the solving of unsolved crimes or revisit for the, the uh, point of view of trying to determine whether the verdict was done right or not. So there was a form of kind of entertainment um, that came from uh, looking at crimes and dissecting them and revisiting them. And, you know, like I said, trying to solve them or just examine them or just literally do a bottle of wine while having some chit chat on it. And what I'm, you know, I remember telling Matt this years ago, the, when I first started hearing about um, podcasters and true crime, I loved the fact that some of the leading people were females. And I thought, well, this is because they're just talking about it. They're not coming in to try to necessarily advance like a play, like a sports commentator. They're not coming in to do a commentary like that. So I think it's really fascinating what's going on in the podcast space um, with the types of content 
that are, are really doing very well. And you're in the crosshairs of this by asking that question, what should you rip on in your monologue, you know, between true crime and podcasting? In which, in which case, getting back to that thing about Elizabeth Taylor scraping Montgomery Cliff's teeth out of his throat, yeah, let's look at it within the context of what that film critic was saying about Shutter Island. It feels fucked up to be talking about some personal issue that I'm having, some abstract shit about, like, mm, I'm gonna be more authentic on the podcast, and to then just casually digress into a vivid retelling of the ugliest moment from the worst night of a stranger's life. But, that being said, like, looking a bit closer at the moment, it does see, it seems like a kind of a beautiful moment. I know that's hard to argue, because we're talking about a woman scraping the broken teeth out of her loved one's throat, but it also... Like, when you think about it, it takes a lot of love to do that. So, so here, I, here I am, I'm a storyteller on a storytelling platform, and I just told you that ugly story for my own purposes. A store, a vivid story of someone else's suffering for my own selfish purposes. And one of those purposes was to make a connection with you, the listener, by telling you offhand, immediately, about the thing that just came vividly to mind, and to, to explore it and try to figure out why I find it so fascinating, or maybe just, I, I know why it's so fascinating, and I just want to bask in the fascinatingness. More simply put, the, the double bind is this. If you are trying to tell stories to an audience, and you want to create a relationship with that audience, then the way to really connect with them is to be authentic, to be totally sincere, to be completely yourself. But your authentic self, invariably, is a problematic entity, a work in progress. Words slip in and out of your mind, in and out of your mouth, and sometimes by trial and error or because our understanding of the world is full of holes, we do the wrong thing or we say the wrong thing. Charles Darwin said that a mathematician is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there, which is a fancy way of saying that he sucks at math, but I think it's also a good metaphor too for everyone who has ever tried to do anything especially make a connection with another human being. Yes. Are you, in fact, also still interested? I know it was a, a passion of yours in, uh, in previous uh, years in bullfighting. Yes, but by, by less, uh, uh, I'm interested in what I remember. You don't? I, don't? I don't like it much anymore. Why is that? First of all, bullfighting, as somebody once said very well, is um, indefensible and irresistible. But uh, I've turned against it for very much the same reason that my father, who was a great hunter, suddenly stopped hunting. He said, I've killed enough animals and I'm ashamed of myself. And I've seen too many hundreds of bullfights, thousands of them, I suppose, and wasted a lot of my life now that I look back on it. And although it's been a great education to me in human terms and in many other ways, uh, I begin to think that I've seen enough of those animals die. Wasn't I living second-hand through the lives of those toreros who were my friends? Yeah. Wasn't I living and dying second-hand? Wasn't there something finally voyeuristic about it? I suspect my afficion. I still go to bullfights. I'm not totally reformed. My point is that part of what inhibits me from being totally forthcoming about what's on my mind is that sometimes, sporadically, and for no reason at all, I'm thinking about something like 
Elizabeth Taylor's gesture toward Montgomery Clift of scraping the teeth out of the back of his throat. And if, for, you know, you're just thinking about that while you're eating lunch on a Tuesday and you tell it to someone, there's this fear that you are going to be seen as, you know, bizarre or have, having some kind of creepy, morbid curiosity. But if we are, the more, the more we are honest with ourselves and with each other about the fact that our minds inevitably wander toward these things, the easier it'll be to make genuine connections with one another. And the characters in Anatomy of Desire, the attention is being focused on one woman in particular as, as, as things are coming out about her life and as she on the stand is being forced to own up to them and the grace with which she owns up to them. Anyways. In choosing to work in the area of social climbing in, in social uh, platforms in the digital age, it was very exciting for us to be able to work with the idea of the masks that we put on these days, whether we intend to or not. The situations that we find ourselves in, most of us, most days um, where we're challenged to remember or recall or connect with what we're authentically about, the multiple personas that um, so many people feel like they're walking around with. That's a, an added layer that we wanted to insert by putting Clear Ray in the fitness influencer digital domain, which has incredible opportunity for reward, but incredible risks that can come at you pretty quickly and, and change the board. We really were focused on the principle of intercutting. We wanted the cutting between the voices to be the propellant. And then additional to that, the idea of, um, of counterpoint. And that uh, principle, we felt, actually causes a listener or a reader to lean in. When you have two people speaking about the same event and they have very different uh, ideas or very different responses, to that event and describe it in different ways. It really, we, we, we believe it causes a listener or a reader to pay more attention. I don't think it was L.R. Dorn's intention that the novel should evoke these kinds of thoughts, but this is the trip that it sent me on, because what the Anatomy of Desire shouted to me once I finished it was that the only thing more damning than an ugly truth is when it's packaged in a beautiful lie.